This is the Pride and Prejudice podcast from The Economist Group, which explores the economic and business case for LGBT inclusion. I'm Matthew Bishop, and today I'm talking with Mary Bonato, who is the uh, Civil Rights Project Director of GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, or GLAD for short. In our discussion, we're going to be looking a bit about the history of legal action to advance LGBT rights. Mary successfully argued in front of the Supreme Court in the crucial case of Obergefell versus Hodges, which established the freedom to marry same-sex couples across America. But she's been an activist in this field for many years. And we will later be talking about the current legal environment, where there have been a number of laws passed at state level trying to restrict uh, in particular access to bathrooms for transgender people, but various other uh, actions that seem to be aimed at restricting LGBT freedoms that have been won at the Supreme Court and so forth. But Mary, to start with, give us a sense of, for you, the, the key decisions over time that have, have helped bring us to this, this point in time where at least it's possible for people of the same sex to get married across the United States, because I think a lot of people saw a sudden change over the last couple of years in the States, but didn't really see uh, all the groundwork that was put in. To what extent was legal action a, a crucial part of the foundation for the ultimate change at the Supreme Court? And, and what were the key moments for you over the years where uh, the rights of LGBT people to marry were established? There are several. I mean, and first of all, legal action operates in a bigger context where you have you know, real people who are part of families, who are part of communities and workers, you know, really situating themselves in the world and saying, this is who I am, this is what my life is like, you know, and making the case in their own very personal way for equal and fair treatment. And of course, there's legislative action, both good and bad, that's part of the context. Uh, and with respect to the legal challenges, you know, again, we live in a nation that promises equal protection, that promises that we all come before our government as equals. And really the trajectory in the last 25, 30 years has been one from official exclusion to now more inclusion. And some of the real highlights there, I could pick many, but to pick a few, you know, one is a U.S. Supreme Court decision from 1996 where a state had passed a constitutional amendment specifically saying that no gay person could make a claim of discrimination in that state. And the Supreme Court said, that does, that's just not consistent with our guarantee of equal protection for all. And that idea that we come before our government as equals and we can't just be shut out of legal processes. Um, and if you look at non-discrimination now, we're still at a point where fewer than half the states have non-discrimination laws. But again, that's a far cry from where we were 20 years ago where there was you know barely a handful. So that's one issue. Another big milestone in my view is removing the taint of criminality on gay people and on same-sex relationships. You know, and this is not only the historical sodomy laws, but a bunch of states in the 1970s um, passed specific laws uh, targeting same-sex relationships and enforce those laws. And in 2003, the US Supreme Court said, gay people, just like everyone else, share in that liberty to have relationships, to make decisions about intimacy, to make important personal choices. Uh, you know, in, in other words, you can't just exclude gay people and pretend we don't have liberties like all other Americans do. And that was, I think, a real shift. And then, of course, there's the marriage work. And it was in 2003 that the first state, which is Massachusetts, uh, allowed same-sex couples to marry, again, as a result of a court decision that it's a liberty, that it's an equality issue. And, you know, for a while, it looked like it was going to be some time before states came around. But, of course, really, in fewer than 15 years, uh, we were in front of the Supreme Court on this because, in the end, you're talking about 
about a government institution, marriage licensing. You're talking about people who want to stand up and make a commitment and accept that responsibility. And the arguments just really fell away and the equal treatment really came into focus. And where was the start for you? What was your first case for LGBT rights? My, my very first case actually was when I was in private practice um, where I was approached by a young man who was being... Um, I guess how he felt about it was tormented by his parents who did not accept his sexual orientation and there were there was physical abuse going on and he found his way to me and I jumped in to represent him pro bono to emancipate him from his parents um, so that he could be safe and he could live the life he had and frankly that whole court hearing was the beginning of a reconciliation process as well where I think it was important for the parents to see the sea change in the law and to see that you know even though again this was in the late 1980s which is a very different era that he had rights too and uh, that he shouldn't just be not only berated but damaged uh, physically damaged because of who he is and that the parents were wrong to do so and then when I came to GLAD where I work now it's hard to think about which was my exact first case because there were a number of things on my plate when I arrived. And in my very first week on the job, I, I got a call from a couple who wanted to get married and said, no, it wasn't the right time, which I said for many years um, until we filed our first marriage case with people in Vermont in 1997. But at that point, what was on my docket was anti-gay violence, which was extraordinarily pervasive and is still very per pervasive with trans women of color, job discrimination, housing discrimination, I was enforcing the second in the nation non-discrimination law at that point. And I'll tell you that the way that those cases went at the time was people were, employers were really shocked at being called out for anti-gay discrimination. They were really upset about it uh, as though they had the complete prerogative to do what they wanted to do and just discriminate against people because of who they are. Uh, and then I was also, as now, dealing with a fair number of family law issues. So um, you mentioned the Supreme Court and the case in 2015 that really cemented the right to marry. Were you ever in any doubt that you would win that case in front of the, of the justices? Well, I am somebody who's a planner, so I'm always planning for the worst and hoping for the best. So of course, I tried to imagine every single thing that a justice might be thinking, uh, or a crucial five justices might be thinking to to thwart this, this right. But in the end, you know, as, as I think everyone knows, they issued a decision that's very much like Loving versus Virginia, which is the, you know, the famous 1967 case that struck down bans on interracial marriage and said there's a freedom to marry for all Americans. And it had an equality aspect as well and said you can't just single out somebody's race and hear it's sexual orientation or their gender as a, as a reason to bar them from joining in a government licensed marriage. And was the, was the reasoning that the justices produced, I mean, that was as good as you could have hoped for, do you think, in, 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 the, in the case? I do. I thought it was a very strong ruling. It actually took time to explain the loving ruling in more detail and explain why marriage is a fundamental right, the kind of thing that has to be you know, examined extremely closely before the government denies it. And it has a lot to do with the fact that people form families, may have children, they want to make a commitment It's part of expressing their own liberty and their autonomy and who they are by who they marry. So I thought that was very strong. And then there was a very important equality component of that decision and recognizing how stigmatizing it is to gay people to say that we alone are somehow damaged or deficient and therefore can't you know, can't join in this institution that's really open to all who are of the proper age and not already married. 
What do you uh, make of the situation now where we're, we're seeing you know, across the country a number of states passing legislation, North Carolina not being vetoed, does impose restrictions on some of the freedoms of LGBT people? We are at a, there's no doubt we're at a crucial time. And from my experience over the years, every time you win a big case, there's always a period of pushback. And, you know, I remember seeing a magazine article a number of years ago saying, what's the problem with gay marriage? Hint, it's the gay part. And I guess just because we want a Supreme Court case doesn't mean that those people who think that you're deficient or uh, because you're gay or that they disapprove or uh, whatever it might be, they have not changed. Some, some of those people have not changed their minds. And so they are working very hard now to sort of think about some of the most vulnerable people in our community, which includes the transgender community, and to sort of generate fears about this part of the community that's not as well understood as, as gay people are at this point. And interestingly, they're using this, of course, to harm transgender people because everyone needs to use public facilities and transgender people, our students, our co-workers, you know, are in, are in faith organizations. They, they are parents, they're sons and daughters, but they are a small minority. And so people are latching onto this to try to generate fears. And, and interestingly to me, it's the same sort of stereotypes that plagued us about gay people for years. They're going to they're gonna jump on you in the bathroom. They're going to molest you. They're going to recruit you. Right? So it's really the same stereotypes, but now being wielded against a different part of our community. And it's not only hurting transgender people, it's really intended to hurt gay people too, because another part of the North Carolina law is to say that all of the communities in North Carolina that have passed non-discrimination ordinances at the local level those are invalid. And now when it comes to non-discrimination, it's something the state legislature has to decide. And I think with the expectation that the state legislature is decades away from trying to pass a non-discrimination law. So this is really hurting hurting everyone. Having said all of that, I have to say that this is the, the good part of it is that we're having a teach-in about who transgender people are. People have been, everyone's been going to bathroom with transgender people for years. The, really, the question is, do transgender people get to use facilities and participate in public life as who they are? And when you're in this country, the answer to that has got to be yes. Again, because we're not supposed to have government discrimination that singles you out for different treatment because of who you are. That's just foundational to equal protection of the laws. So, so there's quite a, quite a big silver lining to, to, to the cases in that sense, that people are discovering the transgender people in their community that they know for years, maybe didn't realize who they were, and they're realizing how much bigger a community than had been thought. Yes, and I'm not so sure it's a big community, but at least you've had some people who've been very brave you know, who I guess, you know, people thought this person is a man because the person is a man, but didn't realize that the person perhaps had, you know, is a transgender man and had sort of gone through this process of really wrestling through who they were and that it didn't match up with their anatomical sex, that their gender identity and their sense of who they are is really something, something else. And that's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful to realize that somebody's been through that and you know them and you love them. So how does it play out? How do you think this plays out from here? I mean, we've had the Department of Justice moving against North Carolina and, and a counter suit brought by North Carolina, a number of other states continuing to proceed with legislation uh, around this bathroom issue. What, what, what are the, how does this get resolved? Sure. Well, the battle is certainly joined legally, as you are noting, with not only suits, but also countersuits by some governors who are unhappy about the Department of Justice position, you know, and some others who are unhappy about it. Um, so I do think it's going to proceed not only in the you know, the federal courts of North Carolina will go up on appeal. There'll be requests for the Supreme Court to take the case. I'm not really sure they will because often the, the Supreme Court likes federal courts of appeal to 
sort of address issues before it takes the case um, in a number of courts so that there's really good thinking out there. And the real central legal question is, is this sex discrimination? And I think it is sex discrimination when you say you're the wrong kind of man or the wrong kind of woman, because that is really predicated on stereotypes about what it means to be a proper man or a woman. But setting all that aside, important as the legal battle is, and it is, is that so many people are engaged in this. There's people in North Carolina, you know, the university officials, school officials who are saying, we are not going to turn into bathroom police. You know, we need to meet students where they are. And if they are transgender, it's important to them to be able to able to use the facilities and be who they are and be safe. I mean, people go into a bathroom and they do their business and they leave. We have to have a little bit of common sense about this rather than, than gin up all this fear. So there have been a lot of you know, sane heads you know, also speaking in North Carolina. And there's been some really intense protest about, you know, what are we doing to a class of citizens in this country? And so, again, these, these moments are painful, but hopefully in the end, it will also be productive in moving us all further along and understanding the common humanity of, a, of another part of our citizenry. And to what extent have courts in the United States actually sort of settled some of the issues around transgender and, you know, what exactly the, the legal, legal issues are around gender? Well, courts have a very powerful role because if, you know, if the appellate courts or at some point the Supreme Court says, yes, yes, it is sex. Well, if the Supreme Court says, yes, it is sex discrimination to discriminate against someone because of their gender identity or because of their sexual orientation or both, then that is the law. And of course, Congress could try to change it or there could be an amendment about it, although I would doubt that, a constitutional amendment about it. But that would be the law. And frankly, we have these tussles from time to time about whether something is included in sex discrimination. There was a time not that far ago when the Supreme Court had to rule in 1998 that when men harass men viciously, sexually on the job, that that's included within sex harassment. And that's illegal. And that has to be stopped. It's something that's, you know, it's not just horseplay. So I think we're at another of those moments of trying to understand what we mean when we say discrimination because of sex. And, and, have, and have there been any significant rulings that have addressed transgender in particular? Absolutely, um, both in the workplace context as well as in the school context. So it's in the fourth federal circuit, which includes, by the way, North Carolina, uh, but a case coming out of Virginia involving a 16-year-old boy who is transgender and about him using the bathroom in the fourth circuit, flipped a lower court judge and said, absolutely, the student has the right to use a restroom in accord with his gender identity. And if other students are uncomfortable about that, they can use a different facility. And likewise, in the employment context, there have been a number of circuits that have said, yes, you know, discriminating against people because of their gender identity, their transgender status is sex discrimination. So there's actually a body of precedent really building in this area. But the Supreme Court hasn't yet taken on any issue related to transgender people. No, it hasn't. It has not yet. And again, it likes to let things percolate for a bit before it does. You mentioned you know, the broader movement uh, in North Carolina to try and reverse this new law. And obviously, business played quite a, a big role, Salesforce and others, in coming out against earlier uh, attempts at legislation in, in, in Indiana. I mean, to what extent is is that kind of movement activism, you know, sort of helping to sort of change the thinking of the, uh, the people in court, the judges and so forth? Uh, and to what extent do they take account of that kind of public display of feeling and, and opinion? It's hard to know how any particular judge processes that information about the business community, but it is extremely significant in the conversation. And judges are people too, and they do see what is going on in the world. And so in that vein, when business is saying, 
look, our employees include gay and transgender people. We want to serve gay and transgender people. We don't want to put up, you know, signs saying X, you know, X and Y are not allowed here. That's just not a part of our, you know, national heritage we want to return to in any way. That that's a very powerful message. You know, there are school administrators who have weighed in, at least in the Virginia case, and I expect we'll, we'll weigh in in North Carolina as well to say, we've got to meet students where they are. That's part of what it means to be a teacher and, and make sure you serve every student so that he or she can learn. And I think these real world voices make a difference. So two more questions. One, what's the, what other battlegrounds are there? I mean, it's often said, you know, you can now, uh, as a gay person, you can marry your partner but you could still get fired uh, and thrown out of your house the same day. You know, what What are the other battlegrounds that you're really focused on at the moment? Well, one of them for sure is what you've just said, Matthew, which is re- with respect to non-discrimination, because in, in over half the states, there is no explicit law barring, barring discrimination because of sexual orientation. Sex is included in, in state laws, and the question is, does that encompass gender identity? Under federal law, we think the answer to that is yes right now. I mean, it's a complicated landscape. I think everyone would feel better if there were explicit protection. Um, but in the meantime, people are people feel a little uncertain in many of these states. You know, will they get fired if they get married? What happens if they, you know, live in the Northeast, but they get transferred to someplace with a non, you know, without a non-discrimination law? There's real fear out there. And I think for a while we hoped that states would say, hey, enough of this, you know, demonizing gay people and trans people. Utah passed a law that included non-discrimination law that included sexual orientation and gender identity, but that was the last one to do so. Uh, And the Republicans in the Congress, at least some of them, are working very hard now to preserve a right for, you know, federal contractors to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity or to use religion as a basis to discriminate. And again, this comes up in the federal contracting area only because you have organizations that are receiving government money to do work of the government, but nonetheless insisting uh, that rather than treat all comers equally as the government is supposed to do, insisting nonetheless, even with taxpayer dollars, on a right to discriminate. And that battle is going to, that's going to continue because there are plenty of us who feel like, you know, we pay taxes to make sure that everyone is served, not just some people. And I mean, how important or what difference would it make if, if Congress were to pass a a general equality act and clear this up for good? It would make an enormous difference for the Congress to act and establish the rule nationwide as non-discrimination in employment, housing, public accommodations, credit. Absolutely, it would be very helpful. It'd be very clear information. There wouldn't be any I mean, I don't. I think we're right on the sex discrimination argument, okay? But it's not over until the Supreme Court tells us it's over. So I think it would be extraordinarily helpful. And just as with it's hard you know, to be optimistic about that happening anytime soon, I guess in the current. Well, I keep hope alive, and and you know, even when that 1964 Civil Rights Act passed, you know, one of the first cases was a barbecue in South Carolina called Piggy Park that said, well, it's against my religion to serve black people. Well, and the court said, too bad. And I think. The lessons of history really matter here as well, that in the end, what keeps our nation together is that we can be different, but still be equal. And we're, unfortunately, that is still contested when it comes to, to gay people and transgender people. Well, on that note, I think uh, we must end and hope that the situation changes and that uh, you continue to have success in your battles uh, in the courtroom to increase LGBT equality. This has Thank been you. the Pride and Prejudice podcast from The Economist Group, uh, which explores the economic and business case for LGBT inclusion. I'm Matthew Bishop, and I've been talking uh, with Mary Bonato of GLAD. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much, Matthew.